Well, I don't know that there's a whole lot of need for me to be up here after what we've heard and sang this morning. What a blessing. But we are back today to the Gospel of Matthew. We've been out of it for a while for Christmas, and we preach on spiritual disciplines for the first couple weeks of the year. And so this Sunday is the first Sunday for several weeks that we're back into our normal preaching rotation here. We started Matthew in September, and just before Christmas we left off in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to pick it up again today, specifically in the Beatitudes. And uh, let me just give a little bit of context as you're turning there. We looked at Matthew 5, 1 to 3, the same text we're going to look at this morning, but previously we saw what it meant to be blessed. So all throughout the Beatitudes, we have this blessed are or blessed is, and we needed to find out, well, what does that mean? Oftentimes when we hear the word blessed explained, or even when we think about it, it can mean happy. And that's one of the translations. It's a good one. That is what the word means. But there is something more solid that Jesus is communicating about life in the kingdom. And so I went to Psalm 21 and we took our definition for what it means to be blessed from Psalm 21. So let me read this to you just to get it back in our minds. Psalm 21.6 says, For you make him most blessed forever... Now here comes the definition. You make him glad with the joy of your presence, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall never be moved. So the word blessed is not just a, a feeling of kind of bubbly happiness, but it is a deep rooted and grounded reality that the person who trusts in the Lord will experience joy, gladness, and stability. And so that's the kind of operating definition that we're working with when Jesus says, blessed are, it doesn't just mean happy, happiness is circumstantial, but joy, gladness are things that we can have even when our lives don't look the way that we maybe want them to look. So Jesus says, opening the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we said that to be poor in spirit, we took the word poor or poverty, and we looked at the example of Jesus. Paul says to the Corinthians that Jesus became poor for your sake. And so we looked at that and we found out that to be poor in spirit means a kind of emptying, a kind of getting rid of what is inside of us naturally, our will, our desires, the things that have been tainted by sin, emptying ourselves of those and rather viewing ourselves in light of who God is and his character. So once we understand who God is, who has revealed himself to be in his word, then and only then do we have a right idea, a right view of who we are. So we said to be poor in spirit means to have a right understanding of ourselves in view of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. And it involves this sort of emptying of ourselves so that we can be filled with him. Now all of that took me 40 minutes to say and we did not really have a chance to talk about the kingdom but this first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well what does that mean? 
What is the kingdom of heaven? That's the title of our sermon this morning, and that's what we're going to focus our attention on today. So what is it? Is it the same as the kingdom of God? Is it literal, or is it a metaphor for something else? Is it here now, or is it coming later? All these questions, right? We, we read about the kingdom in the Bible, and it's used in a variety of ways. Which is one thing, by the way, that makes defining it really difficult. Because it's used in several different contexts. But before we move ahead and keep going in the Beatitudes, because I didn't have time to do this previously, I want to spend this morning looking at the same text, Matthew 5, 1 to 3, and we are going to determine what is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not just going to tell you what I think. We're going to go to texts, of course, is what we always do, right? And we're going to see from the scriptures how is Jesus using this term, kingdom of heaven. It has massive implications for us as his people. So if you haven't done so, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and follow along as we read the first three verses. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we want to ask you now for your help once again as we open your word and open the same text. And this is just, I think, a testimony to the living and active nature of the Bible. That we can look at the same things that we've already seen, already read. I'm sure many of us have read this text multiple times over the years. And yet it is good for us to stop and to ask the question, what does this mean? We don't want to make assumptions, Lord. We don't want to play fast and loose with your word. We want to study it carefully. We want to know it thoroughly. And the hard part often is living it out then. And so we ask for your help this morning, Lord, not only in our understanding, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes to see what is here, but also by your spirit, Father, enable us to be able to live this way. These are, these are kingdom ethics that we are reading about, ways that we ought to conduct ourselves as your children, but we need your help. None of us can do this on our own strength. So God, please, don't just give us the understanding you know, academically or in our heads, but help us to connect this to the way that we live and to live faithfully before you. So thank you, God, for this time. And I ask that you would be here with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our first task today, really our main task, is to understand what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.3 and 5.10 and on through the book, we're going to read a lot about the kingdom. Now, I've mentioned in the past that sometimes when we're trying to define a word, or if we're trying to define a phrase, that can be really difficult because sometimes word meanings change over time. I bet all of us could think of a word that a hundred years ago meant one thing and now has a little bit different meaning, a different emphasis. 
And that can make it hard to define things because especially if you read old dead people, which we all should do, they sometimes use words that are like, well, that's not what that means now. And that can be kind of hard when we're trying to define something like this. Well, the problem with defining the kingdom is not really that the word meaning has changed, but that there are many different meanings to the word. You tracking with me? So in different contexts, the kingdom can mean different things. Last night, the men here got together and watched a movie called The Riot and the Dance. And it's about the, the, the world that God made and the, the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. And you see what I just did? So in that case, the word kingdom, animal kingdom, plant kingdom, means anything animal-related or plant-related fits into that category. So it refers to kind of a, a sphere or a group or a designation. Politically, a kingdom is a defined geographical area that is ruled or governed by a monarch, a king, or a queen, or sometimes both. Or sometimes if someone is, maybe you have a coworker who's kind of overly ambitious, always trying to get ahead, and we might say something like, oh, look at him, he's just trying to build his own little kingdom. What do we mean when we say that? He wants to be in charge. He wants to rule. He wants to be the one making decisions about what happens. But what does it mean when the Bible talks about the kingdom, specifically here in Matthew? This is our context with the kingdom of heaven. There has been significant debate on this, significant disagreement on this over the centuries. And so this morning, I'm not going to attempt to solve all of that. And I'm also not going to say, well, here's 11 different ways to think about the kingdom. I don't think that's always helpful. Rather, I'm going to just take us to some texts and show you what this is. And after we see some characteristics, I'm hoping that we can land on a definition for what it is. So in a very simple sense... Maybe a bit of a reduction, but it's a very simple sense. When the Bible talks about the kingdom, it refers to God's rule. It refers to God's rule, the area in which God exercises his authority, power, and government. From the beginning, God has established himself as the sovereign creator who not only made everything that we see around us, but rules it governs it, is in charge of it. So in this sense, we could say that everything is the kingdom of God, the entire universe, because it is under his rule. It is under his protection, his provision. See what I'm saying? The Bible confesses this very often. Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. It's universal. It's everywhere. That's the kingdom of God. We get a wonderfully clear picture of this in the book of Daniel when it records the account of Nebuchadnezzar. It's like my favorite name to say from the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar. You can try it when you go home today. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And he's done some pretty significant things, at least from a human perspective. He's built some really cool structures, some really great cities. He's conquered nations, but he has also exalted himself in pride. And he has come to the place where he thinks he is actually the sovereign of the universe. That he is the one who has authority and power and can do whatever he wants. Well, 
as we know, God is a jealous God when it comes to his reputation, his power, his glory. So when old Nebi exalts himself, God brings him low in a most appropriate way. You can read about this in Daniel 2 to 4. But God tells him that he's going to humble him until, this is Daniel 4.32, the Most High, he understands, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And God does. He does humble Nebuchadnezzar. So at the end of this humiliation, and again, you've you got to read this. If you haven't before, Daniel 2-4, to 4, it's fantastic. But at the end of this point, God brings Nebuchadnezzar back to his senses. And in the end of chapter 4, we read this universal, sweeping statement about the power and the rule of God. This is Daniel 4.34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Why does he do this? Keep reading. For his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and he rules from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Now this is a beautiful and accurate description of the universal rule of God. His kingdom is everywhere. But is that the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5? Is he just saying, blessed are the poor in spirit because you're going to exist in this universal, general thing that we call the rule of God? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think he's just referring to this universal kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount because, for one reason, later on, not too many pages forward, Jesus is going to teach that there are borders on this kingdom. There are people who are not in the kingdom. There are those who aren't in yet. And there are some who will never enter the kingdom. So if you contrast Jesus' teaching of the boundaries with the sort of universal kingdom of God, you can see that these have slightly different emphasis. Now, I don't think it's helpful to make a sharp distinction between those two. Everything is under the rule of God. So I am not trying to say, well, the kingdom of God is over here, the kingdom of heaven is over here, but there are, as we're going to see as we move through, different emphasis if you dwell in this kingdom versus this, even though they are, in a broad sense, the same thing. So I'm sorry if that's confusing. It'll clear up here as we move forward. But I do think that the definition of kingdom being the area of God's rule and authority, or we could say Christ's rule and authority, is a good definition, or at least a good starting place for a definition. But in Matthew's context especially, we need to understand that the kingdom Jesus is talking about is primarily a spiritual kingdom. Primarily a spiritual kingdom. This is why Matthew generally refers to it as the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. Although, as I said, I think it's the same thing. We have to remember, Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish people 
who had wildly misinterpreted the coming of the Messiah and what that all would mean. So in the mind of most Jewish people, with a very small exception, they thought that the coming of the Messiah meant the establishment of a literal, political, and military kingdom. This is what they were waiting for. All of the promises of the Old Testament about the deliverance that the Messiah would bring, they interpreted to mean deliverance from Rome, from the oppression that they felt as a people being governed by someone else. But Matthew is going to reinforce this truth that the kingdom Jesus is talking about is not primarily a literal, physical, or military kingdom. 32 times in his gospel, he is going to use the phrase kingdom of heaven to reinforce the fact that yes, Jesus came as the Messiah to establish his kingdom, but no, the primary purpose of this kingdom is not to conquer other earthly kingdoms. But this is why so many people rejected Jesus as the Messiah because they were looking for a very narrow, very specific little box that they could fit the Messiah into. And when Jesus came, very different from what they expected, they just didn't have a context for that. So let me show you just a handful of texts. I think this will help us uh, understand that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. This can be seen in Jesus' teaching of how someone gets in. How does someone enter the kingdom? Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, who is a religious leader at that time, and they're discussing this very thing, how one can be pleasing to God, how one can be in the kingdom. And Jesus says this. This is John 3 and verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. So Jesus, is. do you see what he's saying? What is the requirement for being in this kingdom that he's teaching about? Is it performance? Is it pedigree? Is it the way that you have distanced yourself from icky things, sin, blech? No, it's regeneration. The new birth, that's Jesus' language for being saved. And so he tells Nicodemus, the way into the kingdom is by repentance and faith. It is through hearing the gospel. And he makes his point so clear. He says, you must be born again to even see it, in verse 3, and you must be born again to enter it. This is verse 5. So this is the boundary, this is the border of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Now that is somewhat of an implication of that text, but Jesus gets even more explicit about this as we move on in John. In John 18, he's on trial, he's been betrayed, he's before Pilate. Now Pilate is the figure of the governing authority in that region. He's the, about the highest up you can get right there in that space. And he brings Jesus before him because the Jews are saying, this guy says he's a king, you better crucify him. It's kind of their tactic to get rid of Jesus. So Pilate brings Jesus before him in John 18 and he says, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, what is he asking? Am I going to have a problem with you? 
Are you a political rival to me? Do I need to be concerned that my kingdom is kind of shaky here? Jesus answers him, and in this answer, we get a real clear confirmation. This is John 18, 36. Jesus answered and said, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus says here, this kingdom is not of the world, and it is not from the world, meaning it is primarily a spiritual reality, a spiritual kingdom. Paul says in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, the, the physical characteristics, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So now we should ask the question, what exactly are we affirming if we affirm that the kingdom is primarily spiritual? What are we saying, why am I emphasizing this, when we say this is primarily a spiritual kingdom? Does it mean that the kingdom of heaven has zero import or impact in our life? What's well, a spiritual kingdom? What does it have to do with me? I'm, I'm physical. Does it mean that there are certain places where Christ exercises his authority as Lord of all and other places where he doesn't? There's a really dangerous doctrine floating around the church, has been for about a hundred years, and it is called the sacred and the secular. It is this lie that says that inside the church, Christ is Lord. And everywhere else, now nah, it has nothing to do with that. This is spiritual. Is that what we're saying when we say that the kingdom is primarily spiritual? No, of course not. Hopefully you agree with that. We've already determined that the entire universe is the kingdom of God. But inside the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about here, we need to draw attention to the fact that the spiritual nature of what Jesus is talking about reminds us that his primary concern is not establishing human institutions. That's not how he came, and that's not his plan for advancing his kingdom. It's not ultimately his purpose. But his purpose in the kingdom is to teach and train and disciple his people to look more and more like him. What does the Great Commission tell us at the end of Matthew? Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. And when that happens, when the people of God take seriously our responsibility to go with the gospel and preach it everywhere, it will have a transformative effect on the world around us. So do not hear me say that the kingdom of heaven is primarily spiritual and assume, oh great, I'm off the hook. Absolutely not. The kingdom of heaven motivates us. It enables us to be able to work and take this gospel and spread it everywhere. And it will have effect on the world around us. And just because I say, well, it's not the primary purpose, does not mean that it is no purpose. 
The kingdom of heaven is transformative in its nature. So I am saying Christ is Lord over all, but there are unique and specific expectations, commands, and blessings that exist inside the kingdom that do not exist outside of it. Does that make sense? This is why we said that all of the teaching that we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount is meant for Christians. This is not an evangelistic tool to tell people, hey, if you live this way, you can get into the kingdom. This is how those who have been transformed by the grace of God are called to live in the kingdom. Kingdom ethics would be a good way to put this. The reason for that is that obedience to the law of Christ is only possible through the spirit of Christ. There is no hope for anyone to live this way unless the spirit of God dwells in you and motivates your obedience, empowers you to be faithful here. It is the only hope we have, which is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom. So we've seen that the kingdom that Jesus is representing here in Matthew 5 is chiefly spiritual and moral. It's entered into through repentance and faith. It's not of the world. It's not from the world. And those are characteristics. But now I want to try to summarize this into a definition. This is what I labored over because every time I thought I had it, <coughs> I'd read another text and go, well, that doesn't fit. <laughs> Scratch that one. And uh, so here's where I'm at. Here's my working definition here of the kingdom based on what we've seen and what I'm about to tell you afterwards. You can write this down if you want to. The kingdom of heaven is where the authoritative rule of the triune God is not only acknowledged, but joyfully obeyed by those redeemed by his grace. Let me say it again. The kingdom of heaven is where the authoritative rule of the triune God is not only acknowledged, but joyfully obeyed by those redeemed by his grace. We point out a couple of things about that definition. First, it does not limit the kingdom to any geographical or spatial area. There's no limit to where the kingdom of God is. If it is defined by the rule of Christ that is joyfully obeyed by his people, in that sense, the kingdom is everywhere we are. Track with that? Second, I use triune God rather than kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven or kingdom of Jesus because all three members of the Trinity are at work not only to bring people into the kingdom which is repentance and faith and we know that to experience conversion must involve all of the members of the Godhead we've talked about that a lot in the past but also once you are in the kingdom we need all three members of the Trinity. We need the Spirit motivating our obedience. We need the Word of Christ that is given to us so that we know how to live. And we need the Father superintending all of the events of our life, decreeing what happens as we live. This is, Lord willing, a Trinitarian definition. Third, the kingdom is entered into through regeneration, which is a work of God's grace which enables those in the kingdom then to experience, you've heard these things before, joy, gladness, and security. 
What is that shorthand for? Blessing. The blessed is what Jesus says, blessed are. Because when you live this way in the kingdom of God, enabled by his spirit, this is what you experience. Not a kind of circumstantial happiness, but a deep, grounded, blood-bought joy, gladness, and security in God. So in light of this definition, here's a couple more big words. I know you love these. You ready? We can say that the kingdom of God is both soteriological and eschatological. Don't get scared. I'll tell you what those mean. Soteriological means having to do with salvation. Soteria, salvation. And eschatological, eschaton, is last, last things. So I'm saying that the kingdom of God, some characteristics again, are that it has to do with salvation, which is different than the universal sense, right? Everybody's in that universal kingdom. And there are implications for last things. So let's talk about both of those just a little bit. Of course, it refers to salvation or soteriology. One must be saved to enter the kingdom. This is Jesus' whole point in the discourse with Nicodemus in John 3. So going back to my definition, here's what I want to ask. Are the things that we talked about happening perfectly right now? So remember the definition, the kingdom of heaven is where the authoritative rule of the triune God is not only acknowledged, but joyfully obeyed by those redeemed. Is, is that universal right now? No. I mean, we still have a police department, right? If, if everyone lived in joyful obedience to the law of Christ, we'd be great. Problem is, that doesn't happen. And this is where the eschatological part, the, the last things part of my definition comes into play. Because when Christ returns and establishes his everlasting kingdom on a renewed earth, this definition, this way of living will be the case universally. The law of Christ will be obeyed perfectly. Which leads me to the last thing we're going to point out about the kingdom. It has to do with time. And I'm saying that the kingdom came, the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is coming. The Bible refers to the kingdom of God in all three tenses, past, present, and future. When Jesus was here on earth, he referred to the kingdom as having come that it was here, which means for us, that was 2,000 years ago, it is in the past. It has come. In Luke 17, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. And we kind of we dog on them sometimes. They're pretty smart guys. And they were asking the same kinds of questions that you and I would ask if we were having this conversation with Jesus. Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Isn't that what we all want to know? <laughs> What's going on here? When is this all going to wrap up? So being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Well, that's interesting. He goes on, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or literally, it's in your hands, it's in your grasp, it's here. 
So Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you want to know when the kingdom's coming? It's here. It's among you. It had come with Jesus. He had inaugurated the kingdom of God, only it would not be observable, he says. And I think he means observable in the way they thought it would be. They were looking for a king on a horse, not a servant on a donkey. So they missed it, largely. Now, what do I mean when I say that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom? What does it mean when, like, we use the word inauguration? What does that mean? It means something is starting, right? Uh, a president gets elected, and we have inauguration day. What does that mean? What, we're commemorating the start of his term. It's the, it's the beginning of something. So when I say that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom with his coming, I mean that it came, it started, it is in motion, but that it's going to be realized in progressive nature. Here's what I mean. The kingdom of heaven did not come all at once. Right? When Jesus came the first time, not everything was just snap of the fingers, set to rights, sin gone out of the world, we don't have to deal with that anymore. Jesus did not establish the kingdom in its finality. He inaugurated the kingdom. Does this make sense? So when he comes, he sets things in motion that will not stop until they reach their consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. Now Jesus testifies to the progressive nature of the kingdom growth in many of his parables. He compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. And he says it's the smallest of all seeds and yet it grows into a huge tree that gives shade and shelter and houses animals and all these kinds of things. He says the kingdom is like a little bit of leaven that is mixed in with a whole bunch of flour. And eventually... All the leaven mixes in with the flour and the whole batch is leavened. This progressive nature of the kingdom, the fact that it is in motion because Christ inaugurated it, I think gives us tremendous hope that no matter where we find ourselves in the snapshot of history, early church, just decades removed from Jesus, Middle Ages, Reformation, early 1900s, all the way through where we are. Wherever we find ourselves in this snapshot of history, we can have confidence that the kingdom is growing. The gospel is advancing. What started with 12 frightened men in a little room in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago has grown exponentially. Now there are missionaries being sent all over the world to preach the gospel. It is not localized to Palestine, but is exploding throughout the globe. This is the progressive nature of the growth of the kingdom of God. That what was set in motion by Jesus Christ at his coming will not stop until everything God has purposed has been realized. I would have thought maybe that would have drummed up some sort of response. Do you know what good news that is? You have any idea? Let that sink in for a moment. No matter what happens in this world, no matter who is on the throne or in the Oval Office or on the school board or whatever, which, by the way, are areas we should be involved in, 
and speaking truth into, but regardless of what happens there, the kingdom is growing. The mustard seed has sprouted. The tree is coming up out of the ground, and it will not stop because it is God's plan. It's wonderful. It is so encouraging to me to know this about the kingdom of God. What a blessing for us. Now, the kingdom came and the kingdom is here. Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you belong to Jesus, you are in his kingdom now. God has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness and death into the kingdom of his son. This means that nobody is off the hook for obedience to the law of Christ. Sometimes when we talk about ethics and obedience and the way things are going to be or the things they were, sometimes we get this idea in our minds that, well, when that happens, then that's how we'll live. Or, you know, when this comes about, then this, no. No, the kingdom is here God has required, why do you think the Sermon on the Mount's in our Bible? It's not just so we can say, wow, this is pretty great. Uh, finally, one day, when everything's made right, I'll live this way. No. We are called to live this way right now because not only did the kingdom come and inaugurate in Christ, but it is here. God has placed us in this kingdom. So the kingdom came, the kingdom is here, lastly, there is a sense in which the kingdom is yet to come. And what I mean when I say the kingdom is yet to come, you can probably fill in the blanks here, is that there is coming a time which the rule and the authority and the reign of Christ will be undeniably established in the whole world in every possible situation, every possible space, every possible time. And you say, oh, hold on, wait a minute. Jesus is reigning right now. His authority is being exercised now. He is God. He is sovereign. And we say yes and amen to that. But not everybody acknowledges that, do they? Not everybody lives according to the Sermon on the Mount. Not everybody joyfully obeys the law of Christ. But I am saying that when the kingdom is consummated, that is fulfilled, come, whatever word you want to put on there, this will be the universal standard because everyone in the kingdom will be those who have been redeemed by the grace of God. The kingdom of heaven is where the authoritative rule of the triune God is not only acknowledged. So it's not just nowadays people say, well, yeah, you want to live like that, that's fine. I acknowledge that's your right, but I'm not living that way. When the kingdom is full, when it's here, we will all love and joyfully obey the law of Christ. I cannot wait for that. You want to know what eternity looks like in the kingdom of God? A lot of times we have some unhelpful images of floating around on clouds or playing harps or even worse, a saxophone. That's not what it's going to be. This is not some kind of spiritual only, spirit only existence where you float around and, and go through walls. We are going to live on a renewed and remade earth. Physical things. 
And as we live with God, last Sunday we closed the service by reading from Revelation 21. When God comes down and dwells with his people, the law of Christ, all of the ways that he has instructed us to live will be a reality, freed of sin, freed of hindrance, freed of all those things. When the kingdom is finally consummate, the law of Christ will be perfectly obeyed. Not just acknowledged, not just stiff-armed, but embraced That is what eternity with Christ looks like. You're not just floating around. You are doing and living and loving and working and worshiping and playing and all of the things, but free from sin. Can you imagine it? Think about the thing you love to do most right now. And think about how so often sin ruins it. Right? You love to golf? Yeah, you chip the shot way off to the left. You love to hunt, now you don't see anything. I don't know if we'll hunt in heaven, but you get the point. Whatever that you love to do will be freed from the burden of sin. And I just, I say this and I close this way this morning because I don't want us going through this life trying to wring out every pleasure we can now because we think eternity is going to be a bore. That is such a colossal waste of your time. Rather, I want to encourage you to understand that the kingdom of God has come, that it is here, and that when it finally comes in its fullness, there is so much joy, there is so much gladness, there is so much stability that we will experience in God that I would encourage you to give up whatever you have to give up here to pursue that. The kingdom has tremendous ramifications for us. So don't get it in your mind that this is just a future reality. When we die, God's going to upload some new program in our brain and we'll all of a sudden start living this way. Live this way now. Love the things that God loves. Hate the things that God hates. And live your life as if you are in this kingdom because you are if you are a Christian. So my encouragement to you, is a great time of year to start new things. Start living this way in the power that God supplies through his spirit and you will experience joy and gladness and stability. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, it's hard sometimes to be excited about things that we do not know much about. It can be challenging for us, Lord, to think beyond our present circumstances. The things that are right in front of us seem so real. But God, I ask that for those of us here in this room, that by the power of your Spirit, you would strip away those blinders that sin and the world and our own desires put on us and that we would see clearly what it means to live in your kingdom. Trade all you have for the kingdom he's building. Oh, would it be true for each one of us? I pray that we would understand, Lord, not only what it will be and what it means in the future, but right now what you've called us to as citizens of your kingdom. Help us to lay aside the weight and the sin that entangles us and to hold fast to Christ and to live the rest of our days for him 
as we eagerly anticipate the coming of the kingdom. Thank you for this text. God, would you, would you be kind to us as we move now through the rest of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that have established some of these fundamental principles that we would be able to gain wisdom and insight and help from these teachings and help us to apply these things to the way we live. And I pray now in Jesus' name, amen.